This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 511 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Melvin Downs. Now, Mel is a British Army veteran, including 12 years in the SAS. So we discuss a host of topics from his work in Northern Ireland, the Middle East, how he now lives in Dubai, working on the TV show SAS Who Dares Wins, scouting, and so much more. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Melvin Downs. Enjoy. So Mel, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for coming on the podcast. Secondly, thank you because I believe this is the first podcast you've ever done. So I'm humbled and honored that you said yes to my request. So thank you for both of those and welcome to the show. Hey, James, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm so proud uh, that you got me on as a guest. 
So where, because this is an interesting question for you specifically, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Now I'm, I'm living in the Middle East, in the UAE, actually in Dubai. And it's where I live with my family. I've been over here for over a decade now. So that's, that's one place I haven't heard reported. Um, how is, is that country doing at the moment with all, all the COVID stuff? Has there been um, some good leadership, some good understanding of, you know, some of the solutions? Are you kind of back to normal now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it started off, they had a really strict lockdown in Dubai, only for a couple of weeks where you needed uh, permission from the government and so on, from the police to go out and even go to a shop and so on. Uh, but then what they did, they let the economy, opened up the economy, obviously had restrictions, uh, wearing masks and social distancing and only certain amount of people allowed in venues and so on. But they uh, kept everything sort of going at, at, at a lower rate. And since then, they've just had a massive uh, vaccination program. I think there's something like uh, 90% of people so far have had at least one vaccination and 80% have had uh, both doses of the vaccination. So they're doing a great job. And also they're doing hundreds of thousands of tests per day. So they're picking up it. So they've done the leadership out here. I can't fault it. They've really done a good job. And at the moment, you know, everything's running more or less back to normal, except there's a few restrictions where you have to wear masks and uh, a bit of social distancing and keeping your, you know, obviously hands and uh, utensils clean and so on. Uh, and what you find is everybody abides by the rules over here as well, which is a good thing. It's a very safe country. Beautiful. Now, what about underlying health? Is obesity a big problem in Dubai? Not really. There's, there's a, a, a bit of obesity, but not really. Uh, not, not compared to, I would say, the, the US and even UK now. So, yeah. Uh, on saying that, you know, the, the, you see a few kids who are obese and, and so on, because I think in this time of life, too many people are, are on the devices and not running around uh, doing physical exercises much and so on. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. And like I said, it's just getting all these perspectives from all these different countries to paint a picture of, you know, to me, what's working and what's not. I just had a friend who just moved back from the US to Sweden, where he's from. You know, that's, that's again traditionally a very healthy country as far as their physical fitness and you know obesity le levels being low and then i think there's a lot of trust for their government at the moment he was saying kind of probably what you're saying like people said hey this is going to help and people trusted where that information was coming from and and they bought into it so you know again not coming from any particular lens i just think it's important that we we hear from all these nations around the world rather than just in you know, our own one or two countries that we hear from over and over again yeah, sure. And, and as I said, I can't fault it. And I'm not just saying that because I, I, I really do think the government's done a cracking job. Yeah. Well, even the UFC, wasn't Fight Island um, in Dubai, have I got that right, where they were doing a whole bunch of fights? Abu Dhabi, yeah. And I think they're starting to up again. And as I said, the big venues are opening up and yeah, it's, it's life is normal more or less. Beautiful. Well, obviously, you're not originally from Dubai. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and then tell me uh, about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, I'm originally from Stoke-on-Trent, and for, for people who don't know this, it's, uh, it's, it's a city in the middle of England, in between Manchester and Birmingham. I think about a quarter of a million people there. Uh, and my, I'm, a, I'm actually mixed race. My dad, he was from Jamaica, and he came across to the UK in, in the, the early 50s, and it's what was known as the Windrush era. 
and that and this was where people came across from uh, the West Indies and it was named after the ship. It was called the Empire Windrush and that came across in 1948 and it was post-war and they came from the Commonwealth, the West Indies and all over to help rebuild the UK. So my dad came across in the early 50s and he met my mom in, in Stoke. And during that time, you know, a lot of people, most, they, they didn't really like mixed race relationships, maybe because it was something new. And my, my mom was white and her mother actually disowned her. It was either, if you go out with this black Jamaican, you, 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 that's it, I'm not having anything to do with you. But it just shows you how love uh, blossomed. You know, my mom was very, very young, but dad was only 18 as well. They got together and they made it work. And they were together for 50 years until my dad, unfortunately, passed away uh, through cancer. So they made it work. But the original... Originally, it was such a difficult time for them. You know, they've told me small bits and I've had other friends who told me a lot more what happened. But what, what I can remember is, as a kid, being in a big bedsit in this a larger house where there was other people from uh, Africa, Pakistan, and also Irish and people around. And my mother, my mom, got this, she's amazed I can remember this because we left this big bedsit and before I was four. So I can remember from three years old, you know, certain smells, all the different cooking. And I can remember this woman who was the owner and she used to, to own me and bring me down this uh, balcony and used to slide down this balcony. She used to wear this green velvet type of dress. And the, the mom used to say, wow, that's amazing. How can you remember this? And I can also remember these two uh, Pakistani kids who used to take me out for walks and in, in, in my pushchair and push me around and take me to the shop. And I used to buy soldiers, a, a little toy soldier for me from there because I was just fascinated with soldiers from three years old. And, and, I, and again, it just shows how in your memory, you know, you can remember snippets of information. And my mom was just amazed. I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can remember back, <laughs> you know, 50 years ago because I'm 56 years old. Anyway, what happened was eventually, my mum and dad, they, they got a flat, a council flat, in, a, um, in an area called Bentley, which at the time was the largest council estate in Europe when it was first built. And it had something like 11,000 people. But this estate, it was all white, poor, working class people. I remember growing up, there was literally an handful of people out in the south on that estate. So because of this, and you were seen as uh, some, somebody different, we had quite a bit of racial abuse uh, growing up. You know, this is me growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, and I can remember it. I can remember, you know, people that did put a, a, a petition, they didn't want pe uh, people in the street, didn't want us living there. We had our house vandalised and all graffiti written on the walls and lots of verbal abuse and physical abuse. I remember mom and dad getting spat at and stuff like this just sticks in your memory as a kid. And you just blank it out. You know, I've not really started speaking about it until recently, believe it or not. And even with my brother, we've only just started speaking about what went on in the childhood. It's amazing. Anyway, uh, this was only a minority uh, group of people. Most group of people were friends. I'm still friends with, with them there now. You know, I, I really respect the, uh, the town I come from, I love the city, Stoke-on-Trent. I call myself a bloke from Stoke. I'm just a normal bloke. 
and uh, even the estate. And as I said, with some, with my dad and mom, they made lots of good friends, but there was just a small minority at, at this time. And also some people just regarded you as different. The old people at the time, I remember being out with my mom and going to the shops and they'd stop oh, old ladies would stop and say, oh, can I pat his head? You know, I had an afro and everything. And <laughs> I remember getting patted. Oh, like a little dog. I'm looking up at these people and, you know, oh, ain't he lovely, ain't he lovely? And he'd say to me, and do you like being over here, talking to me like this? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I was born here. What are you talking about? <laughs> and where are you from? I'm like, yeah. And I just didn't really click. Anyway, I can even remember my very first day at school and I was uh, five years old, and it just shows you, again, how certain things just stick in your mind. I can remember even having the, the cardigan, what my mum knitted me. It was a, a yellow cardigan with two black bunny rabbits on either side of the chest, and I was dead proud of this. And walking up to school, my mum dropped me off, and it was a, you know, the schools were just a public, and it was quite a run-down school, actually, not, not, not the best uh, places, but it, it, it was what it was. And anyway, when we first got there, we all got issued a locker where you put your boots and your PT equipment or whatever. And each of these lockers had a picture on. So they had like a picture of a doll. So they'd say to a little girl, you know, we're all five years old now. So, you know, this dolly, this is your locker. So you remember where to put your kit. Or this ship, this boat, this is your boat. And you remember this. Or this train set to a little boy, this train. That's your train, so you can remember your locket. And I always remember he was a soldier in a red uniform, you know, like from outside Buckingham Palace with a bearskin hat. And I'm looking at it because I was just fascinated with military from the beginning and, and, and the uniforms and so on. I'm like, I hope I get back. I want that locket. I want that locket. And anyway, the girl, the woman teacher, she gave it to another boy. And then she goes, and Malvin, to me, she goes, you can have this locket. And <laughs> the picture was a golly one. Oh, um, God. You know what I was thinking? Is he going to say that? It was a gollywog in, in them days, which is like a minstrel man or whatever. It's like, and she starts laughing. I, you know, I didn't click, but I can. I just remember this. And it's like, so you remember this, Malvin? And then and that was it. And then uh, I remember sitting down in the class and having stories read. And one of the first stories, you're in the little group, and it was a story called Little Black Sambo. And it's about this, <laughs> you're reading this little book and it's a little black kid, like a gollywog who gets eaten by a tiger. And it's a, one time I thought, was I imagining this? And I, I Googled it and it was a book called Little Black Sambo. It was famous then. And, you know, this is a total different era, but it just shows you how things stay in your mind. Anyway, because of this, I then get the name of gollywog and Sambo. And that was it. I just remember, because there was only one other black kid in my school. Uh, this is junior school. So, you know, as a seven-year-old, I lived about a mile away and I used to just get chased and bullied by the older kids. And my school life was literally, was at the end of the day or an hour before, I used to just pre-plan everything, right? Which way do I get out of school today? Do I go out the front gate? Do I go out the rear gate? Do I run across the east, across the, the football fields and climb over these six-foot railings with, with the spikes on the top? Or do I go out you know, uh, over the other side, across a concrete playground, cross some more, climb over some more railings with the spike on the top, and then you've got to negotiate a, a main road. So I used to just try and change my routes each time because I always used to get chased, chased down by kids. And, they were, you know, they were only the same age as me or a, a year or two older. And it was more, they were just giving me an odd time and just playing with my head and sometimes giving me 
the kicking and so on. And now and again, I'd be running down and I remember that I was that scared. I would actually run and bang on people's doors and you'd get the, the, the ladies coming out and used to wear the old egg scarves in them days and they'd say, go on, leave them alone, leave them alone and chase them off. And then they'd sit me down and, where are you from? And they start talking to me as if I'm from the moon. <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't admit. I was like, God. Anyway, my dad, when he came over, he used to wait down the pits, down the mines. And uh, one time I was running home and he was on night shift and he's usually sleeping then at the end of the day, but he was awake this time. And uh, as I, I was running and getting chased by about four or five kids. And I remember seeing my dad outside. He was outside the house having a cigarette. I'm like, great, there's my dad. I'm in safety, I'm running, I'm shouting, dad, dad. And then I get closer to him and starts, what's the problem? And these kids stop about 70 meters away. And I said, these kids, they, 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 they won't dip me, they've been picking on me. And he goes, well, go fight them. And I just couldn't believe it. So I'm like, you, you what? He goes, go fight them. And, I'm like, and then he starts taking his uh, leather belt off. And in them days, if he was ever uh, cheeky to your mom, Wherever I used to get the belt and, and it's just the way it was, and especially with Jamaican families and, and Caribbean families. That's how they used to, you know, I love my dad to bits, but that was it. That was punishment. And also punishment at school was the old cane and the slipper, you know, it was that. You know. So I'm like, wow, do I face my dad or do I have to face these, face these kids? So I remember walking back towards these kids and, and when, when I was walking, he just goes, leave a mark on them, bite them. So I went, listen, my dad telling me to do this. So I went back to these kids and then one of them starts fighting me and I start fighting him and they bit him and he squealed and his friends started on me and then my dad come walking across and then he, he, he shooed off. And from that day, he just told me, and I was like about seven, eight years old, and he just sat me down and he goes, listen, you, 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 you're going to get this in life at the moment. You know what I mean? You've got to stick up for yourself. You can't be a victim. You've got to be a victim. You've got to stick up for yourself. And he goes, even if you're, Kicking, you stick up for yourself. And, and that's the way he lived his life. He used to go out and go to whatever bar he wanted. And Jamaicans, when they're going out, used to go out all suited and booted. You know, when he finished with from, from their mind shift, he'd get his suit on and everything. Very, very smart man. And people just talk about it. Now, when he made that many friends, they, you know, we, people just really loved my, my dad and my family from the estate. But he would just go where he wanted at the beginning and he'd stick up for himself and, and so on. So this made me more resilient, I, I think. You know what I mean? Made me have to, have to look after myself. And then, from then on, whenever I used to go to school and people wanted to bully me or fight me, I'd fight them back. And even if I got kicked, I'd leave them all or so just really go for it. And it got to the stage where kids were saying, well, I'm not wasting time having to go at him because he's like a little uh, cornered cat. He will, go at me, he will go for you. And then, further along, I just got the reputation of just looking after myself and I had good friends there and then just got on and uh, when we moved up to the high school which is what is it about 12 years old it was a case of right who's going to be the best fighter in this year in this school and and so on then you'd be fighting other people from the other schools and, and, and my dad used to teach me how to box and do fitness so I just got myself uh, in good shape and I was always just wanting to go in the military that was it from as far as I can remember, like, my mom said, you know, from three years old, that was it. You're just fascinated with soldiers. And, and my dad, he was a real proud Jamaican, but they were really proud of the Queen. And my dad used to make me stand up whenever the national anthem was on and, you know, watch all these, this troop in the call when it was on TV, the black and white TV and so on. I just always wanted to go in the military. 
So I uh, ended up joining the Army Cadets, which is a bit like the Scout, but you do more military stuff as well. You know, uh, I remember this was 11 years old as well. And you, you didn't even used to get a uni- uniform until you was 13. So I was there parading in my denim uh, Wrangler jeans and a Wrangler top. And to me, that was my uniform. <laughs> and I was that dedicated, you know, I'd wait for two years until I, I got this uniform. And I loved every minute of it. I just used to go for this parade twice a week and then go on these weekend camps and used to get promotion and do all these courses. And I really loved everything about the, the cadets because to me, it was a purpose. I, I didn't like school. I wasn't academically minded. Uh, and in our school, this case of, right, just go sit at the back and just do what you want. It was that type of school, unfortunately. Uh, and all I was interested in was PT and uh, history, because in history, especially military history, I enjoyed that sort of, sort of stuff. But all I wanted to do is, as soon as I left school, I just wanted to go straight in the military. So... I really took off in the cadets. I enjoyed it. I got promotion and, the, um, and I, I, I thrived because I was doing something, but there was a point to it. You know, I was learning how to camp out. I was uh, shooting. I was navigating. I was doing first aid and, and so on. To me, this was great at school. I just didn't really get it. You know, all this geography and geology and science, I just weren't interested. But the outside sort of stuff, I just really enjoyed. So when... School finished two weeks later. That was me. I was straight in the military. I was as, as a boy soldier. I left school with no qualifications, which is a bad thing. You know, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. But I went straight in the boy soldiers. And I actually went to what was called the Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion. And so if they see a potential leader, even at that young age, you go to the either the uh, well, you go to the Infantry Junior Leaders or you if you win potentially lead you go to junior soldiers at 16 and you do a year's training um, so you do a lot of emphasis on leadership skills and I just loved this year's training I, I just loved every minute of it and I got up to the rank of the junior sergeant major there which was quite an high rank and, and so on and they give you responsibilities so then once I finished my year's training I went to my parent unit which was an infantry unit because all I wanted to do when I joined the military I want to be at the spearhead at the point. I just want to be, right, who does the fighting? It's the infantry. I want to be there. I want to be a a foot soldier. I want to be in the action. And that's all I want to do. And I joined my local regiment, which at the time was a county regiment called the Staffordshire Regiment. So we recruited people from the Midlands, uh, from Stoke-on-Trent, Birmingham, Warsaw, and and all the black black country. So that's where uh, my, my first unit was. And when I joined my unit, we was actually in Gibraltar. So to me, as a 16, uh, 17-year-old now, 17 and all, my first posting, it was an holiday. I'm, I'm actually on the rock of Gibraltar. And it was just fantastic. I loved every minute of it. Anyway, we came back from Gibraltar, and then it was, uh, we was in a place called Colchester as a garrison town. And people sometimes ask me, goes, well, what was racism like then? Now this is the early 80s, you know. I joined in 81. And, uh, and, and what was racism like in the, in the military? Did you get a lot of racism? I said, no, I, no, no blatant racism. There's more comments here and there from different groups or whatever. But I had more racism in the 80s when, obviously, if you can, re- well, you, I don't think you remember, you know, Old the Fire, uh, UK was going through a bad time in the early 80s. Uh, there was a recession and a lot of people were out of, uh, out of work. And you know what it's like when, a country's going through a recession and there's not many jobs, then 
certain elements and groups like to blame people for why they are not getting the jobs. And it was a case of uh, either blame people for, you know, they're a different religion or it's the, or the, the blacks, the people from the West Indies, they are taking our job. So they had uh, groups called like the, the National Front, which was a, a far right group, used to walk around with the Union Jack and, you know, they didn't want black people and they used to march through the towns and had to come up to Stoke and march through there. And I remember fighting with these guys on leave. And then even being within the military, as I said, I didn't suffer any blank racism. On the contrary, we looked after each other, you know, with all the white guys and black guys, whatever. We, we looked, we were a band of brothers. We protected each other. And I remember going out one time uh, in the early 80s to this nightclub, and we shouldn't have gone to this certain club. It was, a, it was a train ride away from our barracks. But I went with one of my friends, and he was a wild lad. We went to this uh, nightclub, and... I remember this guy calling me over, and I was about, well, I was about 19 now, and he called me across to him, and then the next minute, he just smashed a glass in, me, in the, my neck, and I and just called me the M-word, and just left, and I just didn't react fast enough. I thought, I remember feeling my neck, and I'm like, wow, I've just got, he's put all ice cubes on me, and it's bits of glass, and then my neck was starting bleeding, just missed my jugular vein. To this day, I think, wow, if that would have got my jugular, that could have killed me. Anyway, I had a dark T-shirt on, T-shirt on type of job. And I remember the, the, the woman just who owned this nightclub or the manageress or whoever she was, she took me in the back and just passed me up, put a plaster on. And then I went back to this nightclub and carried on drinking with my friend. And then when we was leaving this club, we're, you know, like one o'clock in the morning or whenever it was, very late. I remember just going outside and then this coach pulled up, this, this great, you know, boys pulled up and they had a this, it was just full. I don't know whether there was some sort of football supporters or they were like National Front. They all come, the guy who glassed me come running off and then wanting to have a go at me again. And, and then lots more of these guys all come in, running off this coach and basically attacked me. And I, I could have ran back in the nightclub, but I didn't because it was that stubborn attitude. And my dad said, you always stand and fight. And so I was standing there. I remember the bouncers shutting these glass doors and I'm sort of on my own. And I remember my friend pushing his way through and he'd come out to stand with me. And, and that was it. I remember then getting the kicking in my life, getting not more or less unconscious, getting dragged along the ground and glasses smashing and then getting slashed across the chest. And, and, and then I, I remember coming round, getting dragged back in the nightclub, the bouncer sort of opened the doors and pulled me in. And then that was it. And then I, uh, the same woman who passed me up earlier on, she patched my chest up. They were all superficial. They weren't deep scars, but I've still got the scars to this day. And, and at the time, you know, nobody called the police, nobody got the ambulance, but I didn't want anybody to bring the police because I was worried that the military might say something. It was on the weekend and I'm like, wow, I don't think this was an out of bounds area. We shouldn't have gone to this club anyway, you know. And so I remember then on the Sunday morning on the parade and my platoon sergeant saying, what happened to you? And, you know, you got bruises on your face. And my friend, he, had, he actually had boot marks on him. Like, oh, no, it's the squaddy bashers. Because even in garrison towns, you used to have what was known as squaddy bashers, which were uh, groups of gangs of blokes who didn't like soldiers being in their town, maybe because they were fit and they were getting all the girls and they'd go around. Probably. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they'd take on these groups of soldiers and, and you know, bash them or stop fighting. It was always the bullies. They were a larger group of them and they'd try to take on a, a smaller group of soldiers. So in this town, 
whenever they took on the soldiers, if you was the only black guy and the friends of other white soldiers, you'd be the first one to get abuse and you know you're going to get the first punch from these squaddy bats. But we used to protect each other, you know, we'd, we'd watch each other's backs and it was that sort of life. So I, f- I found the military really uh, protective. And as I said, from the beginning, uh, I found in the 80s, going back on leaves or in garrison towns, that's when I used to get any abuse. And it wasn't in the military to do with race. It was outside. And, and that was just at the time, you know. And I don't know if you're watching, if you've seen on Netflix, the making of a tyrant or something. Yes, it just shows you great how, show. Great show, isn't it? But it just shows you when... Uh, times are hard and, and there's a recession in and and how people can drum up support and, and before you know it it can go it can go out of hand and it's just crazy days anyway this as I said all this just kept me made me more resilient and some of this I won't re- recommend to people you know if if a gang of <laughs> racists were after you or whatever wanting to rip you apart then I, I'd do a run straight away but at the time you know I no. I, I'm standing the ground no matter what. I'll go, you'll have to kill me. I'm, I'll die fighting. Anyway, as I said, I, I, I just loved everything to do with the military. So uh, we was getting ready to go on our first Northern Ireland tour. Now, this would be, I was, I was about 20, you know, it was 1984. And uh, at the time, we had people who actually went for the special forces. And, the, you know, nobody knew much about the special forces, especially in this day and age. And I remember people going for the SAS and coming back and not making it. And I'm like, what's this? What you, what, where did you go? And they would tell me all about it. I'm like, wow, I want to go for this. I'm going to go for this. And this one guy who came back, he goes, you can't go for it, Mal. And I goes, why is that? And he goes, because you're black. I'm like, well, what's that got to do with it? He goes, well, we, they work over Ireland all the time, the SAS, and you have to go into bars and pretend to blend in with the the groups and, and get find information in a bar in Belfast and so on. And, you know, as a young squad, I thought, oh, I didn't know anything about it. Oh, sure, that makes sense. I won't even put in the papers. I will never even attempt this. So I thought nothing about going for the Special Forces, the SES at this time. And then I went to my first operational tour in Northern Ireland. Uh, and that was, you know, to me as a young soldier, this was like, right, I'm on an operational tour. But it was just so weird because... Hang on, I'm in part of the UK. I'm what am I supposed to be doing here? I'm protecting everybody. I'm, who am I protect them against? I'm protecting them against terrorists. Who are the terrorists? So yeah, you like you, this was your introduction to counterterrorism type of warfare, insurgency type of warfare. So well, operations, but it, it was just so weird because you're walking around one part of the town and everything can be okay and people like you, and then you you cross the street and then people just don't like you or you know you, and this is when you first started really realizing about the religion and, you know, it was Catholics against Protestants and I'm, what's going on here? You know, I had lots of Catholics and Protestant friends back home. Nobody ever uh, bothered. And, but across Ireland, it was, well, Northern Ireland, it was, as you, as you know, it was uh, people killing each other over it. So that was quite confusing. And that was my first tour and I had a lot of a good friend over there and then uh, people shot and injured and it's like wow this is going on and so and so i came back from that to it and then i want to go uh in the, in the uh, oh this was it when i came back from that to it we went we had this officer come and he was actually went to the SAS like officers can go 
and they do two years and then come back, you know. And he actually did a couple of years in the SES and he came back to me and he, he, he told me, because I, I was so keen and just full of energy and I was so fit and I just loved anything to do with the military. He goes to me, couple downs, by this time I'm a corporal now. He, he sent me on the courses and I got promotion very early as a full corporal at 20 years old. And he says, have you thought about going to the SES? I'm like, yes, sir, but I can't. And I told him the reason why. And he just started laughing at me. He goes, no, obviously you couldn't blend in in a Belfast bar, but you could be on the, the reactive side, you know, I've been waiting for when the operation goes down and then away you go. And also there's lots of places in the world where the SAS work, where, you know, the normal army don't know about and you, you can do it. I'm like, wow. And I goes, right, right. I'm going to go for it. I want to, to go for this the SAS. And at the time, we, we then was over Germany and there was a, a posting going to Northern Ireland. First of all, I thought, well, I'm a corporal now. I'll go to Northern Ireland again. This time I'm in charge of uh, a group of eight men. So I thought this would be good. I'll, I'll do this tour, come back and then put in the paperwork. And then, so I did that tour, come back. And then when I go to put in the paperwork, I was getting ready for going on the course. And then this now brings up to the uh, late 80s, uh, uh, late 80s, yeah. So it was the Gulf War coming up. And suddenly our unit, our infantry unit, was one of the first armoured infantry units to go out to the first Gulf War. And this is when I was going to go on selection. So I withdrew my paperwork. I'm like, I can't go, <laughs> I can't go away now. It's war dodging. I've got my blokes. I've got, I'm in charge of this armoured fighting vehicle with altogether 10, 10 uh, soldiers, including myself. You know, you've got a driver vehicle, commander, gunner, and... Uh, a driver and the seven soldiers in the back. So I'm like, right, I'm going to this Gulf War and then I'll come back and go on selection. So I went to the first Gulf War and we uh, we went over there. It was one of the first units over there. We spent about five months just waiting around the desert. And, you know, if anything, it was really enjoyable because we got lots of ammunition to do all the training. We were training with American Marines as well out there and their Bradleys. And it was... Uh, obviously large scale training where you've got some days it was quite boring for days on end because they'd be moving tanks around and you'd just be sitting in the vehicle driving around and doing all these large scale attacks and mock attacks and so on. But what we did have for all these months, we, we just lived off what equipment we had in, in the vehicle. So it was very basic, you know, lived off rations, lived out in the desert. And all that time we went back to a camp, a tented camp about three times for three, three days at a time. So in about five and a half months or so. We had about nine days in the camp where you could actually sit down in a tent and have a, a sit-down meal and a sit-down, you know, use the portal, a proper toilet and everything. But apart from that, you was just out in the desert. And we all thought this war wouldn't happen. And you'd have the little transistor radio listening to it going on and Saddam Hussein was giving all those talks and this is going to be the mother of all wars and so on. And then getting closer to the time, it, we, it started hitting home. Then when they moved up close to the border and then we dug our uh, warrior armor fighting vehicles they were actually dug in and then uh, say about so many kilometers away way way away you could see all the bombing going on all the lights of the night time so they just carried on bombing them bombing them bombing them and thought now they're going to give in this is not going to happen and then we suddenly get the orders right it's going to happen <laughs> we're going to do these and i remember getting orders for an attack an armored infantry attack I'm like whoa this is this is crazy. And then here I am now, about a 25, 25-year-old, 25 26-year-old, something like that. And I've got all these 18, 19-year-old 
kids and who I'm in charge of. And, you know, this is an, an, an honor. I'm going to war for my country. I'm fighting for my country. And I was so, so proud. And away we went. And we was all waiting for this big battle. And then the first thing that happened was it was just the first attack we did. It was just nothing left. It was just all people coming out, just wanting to surrender. And then the next position it was just all the prisoners of war. So we just carried on ruling forward and we thought, right, this isn't going to happen. And then we got told, right, there's a, a, a company position, we're going to attack this. And we all thought, right, everybody's going to be giving themselves up. And it ended up being a battalion sized position. And they actually put up a fight. And I remember, you know, the, 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 the warrior getting the rounds hitting it. And then this the time we had to depose out the vehicle and the guys all come out and you felt so proud that they were there and we, we were moving forward. Unfortunately, we lost a good friend. He actually got uh, hit by an RPG warhead and we had another guy killed. So we lost two guys altogether in that, our company. And we just carried on then uh, moving forward. And it's, it's, I don't know if you can remember, it's only lasted a few days, but it was just, wow, this is proper warfare now. And I remember seeing, watching a tank battle from the back of my warrior, watching you know, British tanks just take take on the uh, old uh, Iraqi tanks, which were just dug in. And so one tank with this and then another tank with it. It was basically a turkey shoot and, and so on. But then we carried on moving forward and I remember just stopping. We got the orders to stop right on the Basra Road. And this is the, the, this was the road where coming out of Kuwait, the, all the Iraqis just tried to drive back up uh, into Basra and back up to Baghdad. And doing this, what they did is they must have robbed, you know, a lot of civilian cars because there was lots of Iraqis who were just in civilian vehicles driving up. And then on the sides of the road, there was armored vehicles driving up. So it was, a, it was something like a six-lane highway. It was, a, you know, a, a packed-up highway. But we stopped on this road, and it was just like a massive traffic jam, bumper to bumper, as far as I could see, of cars and vehicles, and most of them were burnt out and still on fire, but some of them had just been shut up and, the, you know, all the bodies were just lying there and refreshing. We, we got told to stop exactly where we were on, on this, right by the side of this road and uh, not to start walking around the area. Just, you know, we didn't know what was going on, but this was basically, there was the, they were told this event Saddam just give up and it was like the ceasefire and, and so on. But you can imagine for the coalition aircraft, it must have been a Turkish issue just going up and down this road. Anyway, so we, had, we stopped on this road and there was loads of their surface laid mines what were dropped by the coalition as well. So we were told not go wandering about and just had to sit in this vehicle. And I remember sitting around this area and just, you know, it's like a young soldier, they tell you not to go anywhere. I was a corporal, so I decided to walk around and check things out with another friend, another corporal. And it was just so weird. Uh, this, there was something like something from an horror movie, you know, bumper to bumper cars. And they're just all dead bodies, burnt out bodies and, and uh, the smell. And it took about three days before the engineers come up and started moving the, the vehicles. And we were just hanging around this, this area. It was just like really, really weird. And uh, so that was my introduction like, to the first sort of proper armoured uh, combat. So now I've been in, in to Ireland for uh, two tours and I've also done... Uh, the first Gulf War. So come back from there, I thought, right, I'm putting my papers in now, I'm going to go to the SES. And then what it was, I, uh, my boss sent me straight on to my sergeant's course. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, in my infantry sergeant's course, this would be good because I do know if you're going to the SES, 
you can and you, you you're going to be a sergeant in the SES eventually they will send you onto this course because we have people coming from the navy people coming from the air force people coming from different corps you know engineers and uh, mechanics and signalers who have not done the proper infantry sergeants course so if you want to be a sergeant within the special forces they automatically send you on the, to the proper infantry sergeants course anyway so I thought to myself well I might as well get this done now early so I went on that got a uh, really good pass then I came back was going to put the paperwork in and then we got on another tour of Northern Ireland it was an emergency tour you know we had to go over this was about in um, 92 and I and again, I thought, right, if I leave now, I'm leaving my platoon. By this time, I'm a platoon sergeant in charge of 30 people with a young lieutenant. So when we was going to go on to this uh, tour for six months, the, the platoon would be split in, in half. So we'd take 15 guys, I would take 15 guys, and we'd spend six months in this area called the East Tyrone. And what would happen is half the guys would be in a police station for one month, and the other half the platoon would be on a permanent checkpoint aboard a checkpoint like a mini fort and we'd spend a, a month uh, doing a rotation like a month on patrols and a month on this checkpoint and we would rotate between the platoons so that's what I did and I was in charge and I thought well this is good operational experience again this time as a leadership role in charge of a large group of guys so I did that eventually come back from there and that's when I finally got the paperwork in and this time I did go for the SES and uh, I went on selection. But, but uh, this was the end of 93, beginning of 94, January 94. So that was eventually when I went. So I went uh, about 28, 29, and uh, I went on selection. And selection, it's, it's a bit like going, I don't know, about maybe in, in the US, it's, the SES is like the equivalent of maybe Delta Force and then got the SBS, which is, say, like this, the SEALs. It's called Tier One Special Operations. So it's very a lot of people go for this course. The course is always full to capacity, and they have two courses a year. But um, very few people actually make it. It's got a really small percentage who actually get through, and it's a quite a tough course. You know, physically demanding, uh, mentally demanding, and it's run over quite a long period of time. And they really do push you to your, your physical limits and uh, your psychological limits. You've, you've got to have good mental resilience to get through it. Unfortunately, I, I got through it because no, no way was I going to take myself off that course all, all the time. You know, I had my dad in my background. No, I'm doing this. No, nothing's going to stop me unless I got injured. And uh, so, yeah, I eventually then got into the SAS. And I remember getting there thinking, well, I've, I've done three tours of operational tours in Northern Ireland and I've also been to the Gulf War and I've, I've had experience as a corporal in charge of eight guys and I've had experience as a sergeant already in, you know, in, in charge of half a platoon uh, on operation. So I've got this experience. And when you go to the, the unit, the SES, you automatically go back down to a trooper, uh, like acquaintances of private, but it's obviously very different. It's total, you know, it's, there's nothing. It's not like, in an infantry unit or normal military way, it's more formal, it's more informal. You nobody's saluting everybody, and you call the officers, you don't come there, it's boss, and it's 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 just a total different way of soldiering, and it's fantastic. I really enjoyed every minute of it. But yeah, what I remember is when I finished selection, the guy saying, Right, okay, enjoy it, because it'll be over in a flash. And I'd already done 12 years, and then I, I did another 12 years within the SAS, and then 
for you know you're just away here there and everywhere you know this was the time when Bosnia was on there was a lot of other secret sort of team job operations going on which you can't talk about where you just go away in small groups and and uh, do uh, missions or tasks of uh, training other people up and so on so you just get to see what the normal army don't uh, uh, even think about you know and, and so on it's just a, a really fast-paced dy- dynamic way of life and I enjoyed every minute of it and then uh, I always remember when 9-11 happened and being you know everybody remembers where they were don't they when that happened and we'd been down in the CQB house we'd been shooting on the range and then as soon as we come back up remember going into the what was called the interest room our area where we all group up in the mornings or you know your team room and the big and the TV's on and everybody just watching this what's going on here and it's like wow this is really going it up and that was it from then on it was just full on and you know half the group would would be just concentrating on uh, Afghanistan and the other half the group concentrating on Iraq at this time and, and that's you know you, you did all the things what you, you wanted to, to do within the special forces I remember the first time when it, in the first Gulf War thinking wow the, the SAS they'd be out there guiding the bombs they'd be behind enemy lines and then later on you know I was behind enemy lines I've done all you know you, you've done all that so come 2005 I've done 24 years now I've done all my time and I could actually stay on for longer and uh, but I decided now I've done my full career now uh, after this and I was you know I was I got out as a, a warrant officer I've, I've done all my full full time and also I had my my girlfriend, who's now my wife, you know, she'd been with me while I was in the SES for the last three years. And I decided to get out and uh, just uh, get out and then just crack on and do something different. Anyway, I remember getting out. And for the first couple of months, it was just weird. I had a bit of time on my hands. And it was the first time you've had this hectic life. And suddenly the pace has slowed down and there's nothing really going on. And, and it was, you know, I can understand why a lot of troops... Uh, have difficulties leaving the the forces after they've done all their time, or even even if they've only done three, three years. You know, it's difficult adjusting that. It's, this day and age, I've, I know it's a lot better. But back then, it was, this is two thousand and five when I got out. It was still, you know, not, not much resettlement sort of going on. Anyway, what happened was I actually got a job working with other SS guys, and I remember saying to my wife. Well, she wasn't my wife then, but my girlfriend saying, right, I might as well hit the ground running. You know, I've been away for about nine months a year anyway. I'm always away. I'll carry on being away now for a few years and we can build up enough money for sorting house out and uh, just bear with me. And, yeah, okay. So my first job was with, uh, believe it or not, I used to look after CBS News, American News Films, uh, team, uh, film crews. And I was back out in Baghdad. And <laughs> I remember being out there, you know, before you used to be around this area and you was always on the offensive. And you know it's very dangerous when you're going to do a job. However, you know, usually you're going to come off the winners. You've got all the air support. You've got the medis- medical support and so on at the end of it. Now I find myself in the middle of Baghdad. And we weren't in the green zone. We was out in the centre living in the hotel. And we had a floor, what we used to look after and secure. And it was basically four XSS guys would always be on duty in, uh, in this uh, uh, hotel looking after the, the guard force and looking after CBS News. So, so whenever they want to go out and do any reporting, we'd take them out and do some filming and, you know, you'd film both sides and, and so on. Or we'd 
go and pick them up at the air, from the airport. And at that time, the airport road was a bad runner or we'd drive through the city to get there or we'd take them to American bases. If they're getting deployed with the mil- um, American military, drop them off and then pick them up somewhere else. Or sometimes we take them out and do film shoots. And sometimes it'll be just fast fastballs, like there's a, a bomb gone off here, a market bomb gone off there. And we'd just be racing out and doing the filming and doing, and, you know, sometimes it was in really, really bad areas, but if you just get out, it was, the cap- it was a shock of people seeing you there. Wow, these guys are filming and you can get away with it for a few minutes if, you, if you're really fast as a team and then get back in the vehicles and away you go. And instead of being a, on the offensive, as I said, it was all defensive work and we used to drive around in two vehicles, uh, low-profile vehicles, so they blended in and we'd have a local driver, uh, one, of, one of the team would be uh, an SS guy would be in one of the vehicles say with the correspondent in the back and then this, the backing vehicle he'd be uh, have a local driver another SES guy and you'd have the cameraman and sound man and that was it we'd just go a two man sort of protection team and we'd be going out sometimes at night time and it was really dangerous and I'm like wow I remember some of these places back in the past and now I'm <laughs> cutting about here uh, just, just the two of you uh, and getting people out to doing their reports and back. And I remember sometimes when we used to go in the green zone to drop off the press, you know, because there was a press office there, sometimes meeting regiment guys who were out there doing the jobs and that, and they're like, wow, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you're going out, they couldn't believe that you're going out, just two men out in so-called bandit country. So anyway, I had, uh, had people stick in your mind, but I, I met the most amazing guy and I still in touch with him now. He was the bureau ch- uh, bureau chief of CBS News. He was a, a bloke called Larry Doyle, and he's he's a legend there. He's been he's been with CBS News for about you know fifty years before he retired in his seventies now, and I'm, I'm still in touch with him on a weekly basis. So I really, he's such an inspirational man. He was such a a calm character and such a nice character, and he, he was used to look after this bu- bureau chief. Uh, it was the bureau chief, so he used to look after all the show and he ran the show and he was he used to treat people exactly the same it doesn't matter if he was the correspondent or the t-boy or the cleaner he was you know he treated everybody the same and you as, as i said i'd spend about nine months a year out and working with these guys so you, you got to know all the correspondents coming through and the, and the people and you, you was like a lot of family and it was you know at times we had some there were some sad times there we lost people I remember dropping the team off, you know, a, a cameraman named Paul Douglas and James Brolin. They were both British guys, but they were they were working for CBS News. We dropped them off. They got dropped off of the American military. And then, unfortunately, there was by a, a car bomb uh, and they were doing a report and there was a, a bomb right nearby and it, it, it killed Paul and James and Kimberly Dossier. She was the correspondent at the time. She was badly injured. Uh, God bless you, she's still okay and she's working now, you know, she's made a recovery. A US soldier got killed on it and translator. And then we also had translators, uh, a, re- a real nice guy with for CBS for about 10 months. I, I used to tell me all about his family and everything. I got really, you know, a great rapport with him. And then he got kidnapped and it was a ransom. And obviously, Westerners, we don't pay ransoms. And then they found him in Saudi City and killed. And, you know, it was a real eye opener. And it was you seeing the, the damage and, and what's being done and, and, and so on and this the hotel where we were staying 
one day that got blown up, the lobby got blown up and killed over a dozen people and lots injured. So we moved out to this hotel, we moved into villas and we carried on doing all the, all the reports. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a really, it was part of my most enjoyable time because I met some terrific people. Like I said, Larry Doyle is a legend. Uh, going back to Larry Doyle, by the way, he was originally a Vietnam vet. He was an officer in Vietnam. Then they got out and he started looking after the news from them days and he's he been doing it everywhere. He's been all around the world. I mean, it's about every war zone and every country, you know, he's, he's, in, he's such an inspirational bloke. And as I say, he's, he's somebody who stands deep in my heart to this day. Anyway, so uh, I looked after CBS News and even what brought to today, it's uh, Hurricane Ida. It's, it's in New Orleans. And I remember getting deployed on that. So I'd just done a stint over in Baghdad and I was just going to go home on leave. And then this hurricane happened and it was like 16 years ago. And just as the hurricane happened, we went over to America to look after news crews. However, I was, I was looking after ABC News at this time. And this was like uh, when Diane Stroyer was around and Chris Kumo, I think he's, he's on CNN now, and uh, Bob Woodruff and, and stuff like that. I mean, we were looking them on, looking after them on Hurricane Katrina, and what happened was we 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 were one of the first news crews to get there a couple of days after the hurricane, and we actually were the first news crew to get a boat as well to take us about a little you know a, a motorboat. So we was going around all the areas, and that just was just a crazy situation. I've, you know, it's brought it home now because obviously the hurricane um, Ida was was on. Uh, uh, and it's brought back the memories from from there, and it was just God. What was it? The ninth ward all got all that area, and it all got flooded. And I remember going out on this boat, and there was just bodies floating in the water. And uh, I remember this one guy; he had a rowing boat, and he wouldn't leave this area. And people were just staying on the bridges and so on, and he wouldn't leave this certain area because all the water had sort of stopped about um, the roof level. And he was saying people are still around. People have made it up to the rooftop in, inside their roofs. And I can hear them trying to get out. And he was he showed us around like certain uh, houses where they knock the tiles off and they pull people out. And he's been just on this, in this boat trying to save people. And so the next day we go back and see him again and, and, and so on. It's just crazy. And uh, yeah, that, that was an, an eye opener. And obviously, as the days went by, more and more news crews come and more people and then eventually the National Guard was there. But I remember going down to some of these project areas and seeing people just wandering around like zombies, you, you know, with, in chest length full of water. Uh, the, the water was like chest height and they were just wandering around and they wouldn't leave their rooms and they were just, just spaced out. And uh, I remember, you know, they, they were saying that they aren't looting. Some people were looting, which is obviously wrong, which is anti. But other people, other people, they've been around for a few days and they, they haven't been given any water. They were just, you know, they ran out of water and everything and food. So they, they were uh, looting the, the shops to just to get supplies and so on. It's just a really crazy situation. And as I said, I brought it home now because that's happening. Well, the hurricane is happening again. Uh, 16 years, like more or less around the same time, but hopefully it's, it's not as bad as what it was then. The, the defensive, the defenses have uh, hold out, haven't they? 
So a couple of things to pull from that, because firstly, thank you. I've got a, I got things I was going to ask you and you basically covered a whole bunch of them without me asking any questions, which is beautiful. Um, so firstly, you have this, this, um, lens, <clears throat> your, your dad's ethnicity, which I always found crazy. The wind, wind rush was right after World War Two. So to this day, I don't understand how some, some, cause as you said, we'll get to that. It's, it's some people that we can, fight side by side with all colors and creeds unified. And then a few years later, you know, in America, some people are hanging black people from trees and we're seeing, you know, kind of some racism in, in the UK as well. But when you reverse engineer a lot of this, to me, the root, as you said, with the Netflix show, the root is, a you know, a lust for greed, power and money by the few imposed on the many. So you have Northern Ireland, you know, Irish people divided not only by the politics from the mainland Britain, but now the religious element that's put on it as well. You have Bosnia, another, you know, religious element. You have, you know, what you see in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. So with that lens, what were the common denominators of some of the routes that you were seeing? And then to add to that, you know, were you seeing that a majority of people were we're not involved in a lot of this greed and power and, and, and division because through my lens, that's what I've seen, you know, with all these conversations I've had. And I think it's something that's not told that, you know, a few people can really negatively impact an entire nation. Yeah, absolutely, James. Like, like I said, it was only a minority, but then minority will stick with you for life. You know, this is a very, very small group of people. And that, that's, that's life in society. It's always the few what spoil it for, for everybody else. Uh, and to me, your friends, your friends, it doesn't matter what colour, what race, what religion, there's good and bad everywhere, but it only needs that minority and it's like, you know, to, to spoil it uh, like a little cancer. And, you know, back then, it was a bit more in your face. People could get away with it. I mean, even the TV shows they had, which were on in the 70s were... You know, to this day, they'd be racist. And, and back then, it was just like comedy and then so on. But to me, uh, looking back now, we, was, was taking the, we were the ones who were getting the Mickey taken out of us being black and, black and, and that. But it's only, as I said, it's just a very, that was a different time and it was just a small minority. And uh, unfortunately, I still think it's, it's going on now, nowhere near as bad as it was. And people have grown up. Uh, change, but it's the the minority uh, now uh, just doing it online, you know, behind the screen. It's, it's that type of racing going on. But as you said, if you if, if you listen to all the reports or just go online, you and you read something, you and you go to that area, you might think, "Wow, that's going to be such a bad area. It's going to be really, you know, I'm not I'm not going to even go there because I'm going to get." racially abused or whatever because all this is going on and then you go there and it's nothing like it you know people over exaggerate i think uh, a lot of the problems you know there's problems but as again it's just a small minority and since if now with everything online as if people want to make division you know and you can't you can't say sometimes what you what you want uh Obviously, you've got to be respectful. There's no hate speech. But sometimes, even myself, I've said things, and my wife is a teacher, and she's gone to me, oh, you can't say that. I'm like, why? And she says, no, that, that word went out a long time ago. You can't. And I even called myself one time, uh, 
that I referred to myself as offcast, and it was wasn't my life. It was some somebody else who was. You can't say offcast. And this was a, a white girl saying to me. I goes, "What? That's what? what I am? No, no, that weird went, went out about twenty years ago. <laughs> I, I don't know. It might be because I, I, you know, I, I've not really been uh, social media savvy. I've only been on Instagram for the last five months, for instance, and before that I was on Facebook. But I've never used it, and I don't really get into the the, the, the weeds. I don't know what words. Are, uh, you can say and you can't say such a big, you know, because nobody says this word you can't say anymore and so on. Same words, we all know, it's, it's obvious. But other words, you, you know, I can say something and then, then my wife will say, no, you, you can't say that, it's this word now or that's an homophobic word. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I didn't realise that. So sometimes I've even been home, even recently, and I've, I've had, especially in the, uh, in, the, in the villages, you know, and older people, they might say something and it, it could really be classes offensive, but it's not really, you have to take in the context, it's that person, it's no person, they don't know really any different, that's that weird, what they know from way back when, they don't know it's not the, it's not a buzzword anymore, you can't say that word. For instance, I didn't know, you know, B-A-M-E, I'm like, what does that mean? It's black ethnic minority, black Asian, yeah. Black Asian minority ethnic. I didn't. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the words in the UK now. It's B A M E. You're BAME, Black Asian uh, uh, minority ethnic. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, who's, who's, who's said this? Why have I got to be called this? I'm, I'm to me, I'm just a bloke, first of all. I'm a bloke from Stoke in the Midlands. I'm proud. I'm a proud, proud British bloke. I'm, I'm black and proud of being black and, and so on. But I, I treat people as I find them and it's good and bad everywhere. But you just got. Watch what you say, because uh, if you say something or you like something, that's it. You class straight away. Oh, you must be this side. And to me, this day and age, it's getting like you're either far right or far left, and you and you can't just be in the centre. Can't just be, you know, me. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and just because I say okay, uh, I like Barack Obama, for instance, I'd say I like Barack Obama, but I liked him because to me, he's an inspirational guy. He's a black guy, and he's just proven that you can get to the top. Made, you know, the most powerful man in the world. That doesn't mean I like all his politics. I don't know what his politics. That doesn't mean I'm a Democrat and I don't like Republicans. I've got nothing to do with American politics. It's just, you know, people say, oh, well, if you like that guy, you must date Republicans. You must be this, that, and the other. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just liked him because he's an inspirational guy. And me being black, I'm thinking, wow, that's just proven. You can get where you want. But, you know, that doesn't label me. And it's the same in UK now. I think UK, you know, last time I was home, it was, because I only go home every few years and, and, and so on. And then I can see a change in, in people. And it's, I don't know, it's the, the pandemic and everything, it seems to be a lot of built up anger and aggression sometimes, but, but it's all on the internet. And sometimes it's, it's as if the media want to um, make it worse than what it is, if you understand what I mean. Or oh, completely. Such, completely. They, yeah, they, they're over the overpower things. Because I remember even when I was in the military, I uh, moved to a, 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 a uh, village area. And, and this area, that they don't, you know, they, I was the only black guy in this small village. And I remember coming back off a job and walking down with a baseball cap on down the road and this old man and woman, and I see the shock in their faces and I'm walking towards them. And literally, they more or less all gripped their handbag ran across the side of the road, the other side of the road, walked past, and they were watching me, and then come back across the road. And I'm like, well, I've been away 
serving this country. Yeah, I've been away serving this country, and then you were looking at me as if I'm going to mug it. But I, I in a way, I understand because there are an older generation. You're in a village, you don't see many black guys or whatever, and they just see what how the media portrays it. You know, uh, oh, in the news in London, black guys all stabbing black guys and so on. But it's a, it's the same going on up in Glasgow. It's the same going on in Manchester. But they just portray it as it's it's you know over exaggerated. You know what I mean? So it's scaring people in smaller communities. They just think, okay, such and such has come. They're, they're a different religion. They're Muslim. Oh, they must be this than that. And, you know, because it's how the media portray people until they get to know the person and speak to the person, you realise we're all the same. You know, we all bleed red. And it's that. So I think a lot of it is, it's as if people or the media want division. They want to divide. And you can see, you know, if I see what's happening in the States or read about it, yeah, you know, I, I, well, I won't go there. But then when I've been over there and I've, I've had a great time in, in all the places and, and it's just, it's just a crazy situation, isn't it? And a lot of it is just the, the devices, internet and then the media and, and you can, even though I've not been on Instagram for that long, but you know, if you before you know it, you're picking up that device and you're just reading. If you just read all the news all the time, it can just send you crazy. Sometimes you just got to put it away and and always listen to both sides of any story. And to me, where where did these sides suddenly come from? Where where is it suddenly like you're either far right or you're far left? Well, where's it, where's it just generated from? And it's actually can be quite scary if you you think about it. And as I said, like look what's happened uh, in the past, and it just needs a major recession or something go wrong, and you just don't know. People sort of get brainwashed. Absolutely. Well, what I've seen as well is um, they give we give all the airtime and microphones to the extremists, whether it's left, right, on whatever whatever topic, left, right. So the middle. 90 85 whatever percent of normal people just don't have a voice and the thing that scares me is not so much the bbc i know we do the tv tv license there and i've always thought the bbc was very middle of the road i don't know how it is now but certainly when i grew up um but here you know basically our news stations are selling advertising space that's how they make their money their coke and toilet paper commercials between shit news report one and shit news report two that's probably why you need a toilet paper. But, um, but you know, so if you are wanting the people to be engaged, to stay on your TV channel, middle of the road, non-fear-mongering stories aren't going to cut it. So what you end up doing is you get these divisive clickbait stories that, oh, after the break, you're not going to believe what Donald Trump said. You're not going to believe what, you know, Biden said. And then you watch the news, you know, you watch the commercials and you come back. So that's, that's I think, one of the big issues is... The same as there's a lot of make, people making money off obesity in this country or in the UK and all the meds that people are taking that really don't do anything for their overall health. It's the same thing with the news. If we had a news that was independent where it wasn't relying on sponsorship to fund itself, I don't think we'd have the same problem. But as long as they need eyeballs on their screens, this division is going to be nourished because you know, good news doesn't sell and that's good news should sell, you know? And I think that's where that kindness and compassion element comes in because, you know, this divisiveness doesn't represent the American people. It doesn't represent the British people, but they're being dragged. That middle group is starting to be torn apart 
buying into these extreme stories that they're being shown over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. That's it. You know, 98%, I say it's like 98%. You've got, you've always got that 2% of people who are just the haters. They don't like life. They don't like people. They don't like, whether it's your colour, your race, or your, your your football team. There's always, you know, the same people who I just think, they're just negative all the time. You, you speak to them and they just, they just want to see the negative side about things. They, nothing, they aren't happy about anything. They seem to be jealous about the, anybody or anything. You know, they just want to hear the bad news. And that's what, just a small percent of people, majority of people, 98% of people just want to get on with their normal lives. And, you know, they respect everybody else. They just, they just want a normal family life and just get on and, and treat people as they'd like to be treated. And you'd like to, you know, you'd, you'd like yourself to be treated and, and, and so on. And that, and it's a shame how this divide is uh, seems to be happening, and it seems to be you know, well. If you, if you believe all the media, it seems to be getting worse and worse because that's what they like, you know. And I, I agree with you one hundred percent, James. You've hit the nail on the head. So con- conversely, one of the questions I ask, and you already told a very powerful story of the first Gulf War and being a young soldier you know, sitting in a vehicle surrounded by all this, you know, horrendous death and destruction. What I also like to pull out, though, through the soldier's eyes, because again, sadly, we get a very polarizing view on our televisions of war, very anti or very pro. Um, what are some of the, the moments of compassion and kindness amidst some of these war zones that, that you remember from your career? Oh, I've been places where, you know, they've, people haven't got uh, they haven't got a pot to piss and sort of thing. You know, they've got no food, hardly any food. And then they're living in literally squalor. It's just like, when I say a mud outside the scenario. And they, and yet you can go in there and they'll offer you food. They'll offer you their food and invite you in to and just try and give you, you know, what whatever they've got. And you're like, what what, what nice people there. And they just want to get on with their lives. You know, they, they've got kids just trying to play with whatever they can make out the ground, uh, you know, uh, an old tire or something. They make it, they, they, they're using it as a play thing and, and so on. And you you know, it's, it's that type of compassion. What you, you think, that, this is human. This is uh, what people are about. So uh, I think from the military, you've seen the worst side of people, and, but you've also seen the best side of people and people clubbing together and uh, being resilient and, and, and making things work and, and just getting on with their life. And even, even it doesn't matter, you know, you see the smile on some of the kids' faces when and the, the areas where they live in and what's going on and you're like wow they, they, they're still smiling they're still happy they, they still they've still got that life about them and it's, it's just that what it's own that you know people will just offer you literally the shirts off their back and then try and have to you yeah well i think those stories are really inspiring you know when we hear we need to hear those you know when we hear of war we see little pictures as, as as you saw you know in in iraq you know the the bombings and all that kind of thing but you know i don't think we hear the story of these syrians these iraqis these afghani families who are amidst this and like you said still being compassionate whether it's to each other to to the the soldiers that are there helping them um so it's a yeah. very important perspective yeah, because in the news, they just all want to see the negative, don't they? There's nobody really bringing out the positives. And I don't know I've talked about the past and it seems all negative, but that was like a different theory. That's brought, that's made me more resilient and then things just changed. And, 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 you know, people are more positive and forward thinking, really, generally, the younger population, everybody's just like moving on with, with the times. But as I said, we've got this uh, 
small element uh, who just want well, the news, who just want report on just all the bad what's going on. The, you know, let's have some good stories as well. Said, no matter what, you know, let's have that glass half full type of scenario instead of that glass half empty all the time and, and get any uh, out of any and you can get some positives and and that's why uh, I've been on this show as well this SES Who Dares Wins show and and uh, it's it's a really good show because part of it is the producers they find people there's a bunch of civilians who, who come on this show and say about 10 or 20 civilians or that and uh, they've all got stories backstories and we put them through a condensed version of the SES selection obviously it's nothing like the real selection because that's a lot longer it's trained soldiers and so on but it's a civilian sort of version and uh, we, you know we push them physically and mentally and then put them through certain tests but then they all get something out of it because they're back to basics. It's just like a group of people together living really basic and they've got to work as a team. And then they've all got these backstories. I mean, and when you listen to their stories and, you know, they can be, they, they've got, they're inspirational stories. They can be tragic, sad, but also very inspirational because no matter what they've been through, they might have, uh, <laughs> There was a fireman who was on the Grenfell fire and he couldn't save somebody and it's haunted him and he had the post-traumatic stress disorder and he came on the show and he sort of let all these demons out and he, the people sort of get closure from it. And he, we had other people who were on, you listen to their stories and, you know, they were abused by paedophiles as a kid and then the only, as they got, got older and had kids themselves, then they, they let it out and they, they just let their stories completely out as if they're just letting all the demons out and because they've come together on this course and it's been very basic and they've just been put through the mill and then they sort of just tell their stories and they sort of everybody who goes on this uh, show they uh, get closure or semi-closure from it they all say this and we even have celebrities come on this show and they've all got their backstories it just shows you it doesn't matter how rich and whatever you can still you know, have problems what have happened in the past. You've had uh, being abused in the past, or you know, you've had tragedies, a lot of tragedies in your family. A lot of uh, people, uh, you see people, and because they've got money, they think that if their life's fantastic, but they can still have bad depression, and uh, they've had lots of tragedies or bad health going on within their in their, their family environment and so on. So it's it's yeah, it's quite an inspirational show actually. Yeah, well, it's funny. I've had a couple of people that be on the show on on here. So Staz, who was a mole, actual special forces op, uh, soldier that pretended to be a contestant, that was kind of funny to hear about. But the guy you're talking about, Ricky Nuttall, the firefighter, his episodes, I think, is one of the most downloaded episodes I have, if not the most downloaded. Um, incredible story, and obviously very physically and mentally resilient. Um, but we actually spoke after he was able to talk about the show after you know the episodes had been out. Um, and because of the COVID restrictions, he you know, had to isolate in the hotel for a few days before they started shooting. And I think he said he jumped into you know meditation and that kind of thing. And his driving force that that you know that demon that uh, that he was kind of battling, he he found this kind of peace. So when he came out the other end and actually got on the show. He said that why that burning desire for him personally wasn't there anymore, and so I think he shocked a lot of people by not doing well on the show, quote unquote. But I mean, what a win! It's not. It's not about as you said. It's not about do you win the show for him and his personal journey. That was an incredible achievement for him, and he got to go home a better version than when he left. 
Yeah. I'm sorry, James. I didn't even know that you knew about this or you've spoken to him. I honestly didn't know that. Yeah. And because it, it was a shock for all us as instructors, because we don't know their story until we meet them for the first time and they, they're doing an interview in the, what it's called the mirror room. And that's when they let out their stories and it's like we try to give advice and so on or whatever. And uh, yeah, I remember he, he left very early and we all thought, wow, this guy's fit and he's going to go all the way through. But as he said, yeah. That's me. I'm, I'm okay. I've, I've got, sort of got closure now, and it, it, it did in the world of God, and so it just shows you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that you were uh, knew about this. Yeah, no. Well, like I said, 500 episodes. <laughs> it's it's very yeah, easy yeah. to get get you know lost in all the all the great people that have been on here. Um, so, well, for people listening, obviously, there's a large American audience, Canadian audience, but there's a lot of people that are in you know Australia, UK, some of the places that they can access the show. So, which channels are, are the show on for people listening? Yeah, it's on Channel 4. Uh, it's a UK channel. It's on Channel 4. And that's where they can catch it. It's on uh, Sunday night at, at 9 o'clock. And then you can get reruns on it on Plus 4. So you'll, you'll be able to catch it. And it's, yeah, it's, a, it's quite an inspirational sh- show. It's, you know, it's quite tough. And it, it, there's no niceties. That's one, one thing uh, when I went on there, I thought to myself, um, really, in the background, are, are they going to... You know, give them a hot cup of tea or with sugar if uh, somebody's cold, really cold, and the cameras can't see. But no, it's none of that. It's 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 tougher than what you see on the TV because obviously, when you're watching it on the TV, you can't take into consideration how cold it is, how stressed they are, the, the you know how hungry they are, how tired they are, and so on. And it's like it really is an eye opener for these people. But they all get something from it, and it's really enjoyable. And I really enjoyed being on that show. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I, I want to go some closing questions so I can let you go. But I have one more topic to cover, if that's okay, just very quickly. Um, you mentioned about finding the cadet program when you wanted to be a soldier when you were young. And, and it sounds like you had a great home life, but also that was another kind of mentorship group that you found yourself amongst that led you into the military versus maybe, you know, a different path that obviously a lot of our younger men and women find themselves on. Um, and then fast forward to now, you are involved in the scouting world in Dubai. So talk to me about scouting and, and, and the importance of, of mentorship, the importance of men and women in their community being a mentor so that we can raise our young women up and maybe not have, as you touched on, you know, kids stabbing each other or some of these other wayward paths that some of our children find themselves on. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a scout leader out here and uh, for British scouting overseas. Uh, and the, as you know, the scouts is all over the world. And I'm, it's such an inspirational thing to be able to get back to to, to kids and, you know, teach teach people uh, the outdoor craft and, and, and life skills. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing because, as you know, kids in this day and age are too much on their... Uh, devices and, and it's great to say right put them devices away let's go out let's get some camping done let's get some bit of fire built let's get a shelter built built and and, and everybody who goes on uh, goes away with the scouts for the weekend they all enjoy it. you know they all come back and you know it's memories it builds character and it builds memories for life and it makes you know people more rounded or well, rounded person so i think it's it's such a good uh it's such a good club to join and, and, and anybody can join. You don't have to be an ex-manager or good at camp, camp craft or anything. Anybody can join these groups and just as long as you're willing to put in a bit of time and effort and, get, and, and uh, you know, help inspire the younger generation 
and, and that's what it is. And and I just think, uh, especially in the UK, there's not enough of these scout groups going or cadet groups going. I think they should be funded more in these youth clubs and get people out and about and uh, uh, mixing, you know, with like-minded people and, and friends and get, get, getting just outdoor activities done. You, you come back and you feel so refreshed after having uh, a weekend camping somewhere and, it, and, you, and the kids get so much out of it. I think it's just a great uh, club to join and I, rec- I recommend any adult who's got any time to or try and make time to volunteer their, uh, their time basically to Ralph Powell. And as I said, you don't have to be an ex-military, an ex-fireman or, or, or anything, you, you, you'll get taught what to do or just start off as an helper and then, you know, you go on from there. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great club to be in. Beautiful. Yeah, and I think that's, that's another element of this. You know, we can point at so-called leaders. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of the American or British leaders that we've had the last couple of decades, left and right. Um, but it's very easy to point and go, it's their fault and then wash your hands of it. Or you can be a member of your community and create an environment where you can actually make your community better. And I think especially in some of our underserved communities, which are, you know, all colors and creeds, but the ones that don't have maybe the same financial resources as some of the other communities in in a city or a county, create those so that you remove the barrier to entry. There's, There's a great mentorship program here where they put kids through firefighter training and all you have to do is show up. They'll give you the gear, the training, the, the scholarships for fire school. There's all these kind of um, routes. You just have to physically show up and they'll do the rest. And I think that's a very important thing too. You know, some groups, sporting, whatever, they're great. But there's, you know, you got to buy kit. you got to pay membership. you got to pay to play games. And that might not be an option for some people. So I think reaching out into all areas of the community and figuring out how you can remove those barriers to entry we can change the world, but we have to start in our own home and then in our own community. Yeah, sure. And like you said, uh, all all over communities, especially you know, in these rundown council estates or project areas, and you know, get get there, and because then you can be inspired. You know, you can do what you want. You don't, you know, you just you don't have to have all these skills. You can work. It just but it means hard hard work. It means putting the effort in. It means doing the studying, doing the training. You know, uh, being committed, but just inspiring people to, yeah, you can move off this, uh, out of this area and you can achieve and you can build up, you know, because I, unfortunately I've seen people from school days who literally stayed put, they've never uh, travelled and so on, and then they've sort of gone down the state, uh, the path of uh, drink and so on. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had a few friends who've actually basically drank themselves to death, and you think, "Wow, what?" I, I to me, people say, "If you want to join the cadets or gone into military, what what would you have done?" I, I know I, w- I would have achieved something. I would have because if I want to join the military, I would have joined something like the police or fire or or the first responders. You know, I always want to go that that way in the uniform and and serve my community and save my, save my country. So it's not just being, if I want to sold out, I would have still gone in a uniform sort of role. Uh, yeah, and so it's such a shame that some people have, have obviously not had that uh, inspiration, they've not had that positivity to, 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 to better themselves, so to speak. 
and and go for what they want. To me, it's I always say it's it's better to try and, and fail than fail to try it. Anything, you know, you've got to give it a go. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And it kind of circles around nicely to the, to the beginning of the, of the journey. Um, so some very quick closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. No, 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 not really. That, the last book I read was uh, Tyson Fury's autobiography. And, that, and in fact, yeah, that, that can be recommended, Tyson Fury's autobiography, because to me, he's such an inspirational person. I didn't realise what he's actually been through in his journey. And you read that book, you know, he's been through, obviously you see on the news that he uh, went on a downward spiral, went for a drink and, you know, maybe drugs and put, a lot, put on a lot of weight and he had to lose and then all that weight and then and get back up and be a world champion again. But he also, all these mental health issues and, and what, what he's actually been through, you know, he was on the way of, he was on the verge of topping himself at one time and you think, wow. And that's, so to me, that's quite an inspirational story. That's the last book I've read and I, I recommend that. Beautiful. Yeah, I think he'd be a great person as a guest one day. I don't know how I'd get to him, but <laughs> he, he would be amazing. Fantastic, isn't he? He's so he's, he's so intelligent as well, and he's so well spoken. And then and he's, he's fun. I, I just I love the guy. I think he's great. Yeah, you know, actually, what would be I think a really interesting conversation would be to get him and Anthony Joshua in the same room once they're not boxing anymore, so they can speak free. Because Anthony Joshua, I think, seems to be seems to show a lot of gratitude and a lot of humility, at least through you know the, what I've seen of him. And then I think Tyson as well, you know, has shown a lot of humility telling a story. So I think. Aside from the boxing hype, those two in a room in, a, in an interview together, I think would probably be really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be fantastic. You know, uh, Anthony Joshua, again, is such an inspirational person. I, I like them both, you know, and I, I definitely want, can't, I want that fight to happen. Everybody does, but who do I want win? Well, you know, I'm actually, personally from the stories, you know, uh, I, I go to more Ty, uh, Tyson Fury side myself. Yeah. All right, well, then the next question, um, is there a film and or a documentary that you love? Uh, well, well, my first film, what I've always loved and I watch over it, it's when I have a, you know, when you've had a drink, I always go back and watch that same film. It's just Platoon, the, the old classic Platoon. I just, I just love that, that movie. And it's like my, my go-to movie. I, I just... Yeah, amazing film. Actually, um, have you heard of Captain Dale Die? No, it may not ring a bell to, to British, but he he was the American um, who he's, he's a Marine. He's actually in a lot of these films too. He normally played in Band of Brothers. He played the I'm going to butcher the rank, but he was like the highest rank um, in that story. But uh, um, he's also the one that was a military advisor. So he put the cast of Platoon through a version of Boot Camp. He put the cast of Band of Brothers through a version of Boot Camp, but he's been on the show. I actually went through a, a, a mini, 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 mini Boot Camp with him for a stunt show I did here. But uh, yeah, that's another another one to listen to. He's got a pretty interesting story. I'm, I'm going to listen to the rest of your, well, your podcast now, because as I say, I you know, I don't really listen to any, and I'm just, wow, I've seen the people you've been uh, interviewing, and wow. Uh, may hat off to, off to you. Fantastic job. Yeah. Well, like I said, there's just so many great people with great stories, you know, of all backgrounds. So speaking of which, uh, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? 
Uh, I'd love Larry Doyle, but you know that because this guy, he was the bureau chief, and he's such an influential guy to me. And he was CBS News for the, the you know, say 45, 50 years. What a story! I say to, I always say to him, God, you've got such a story to tell. You've been every, you know, uh, war torn place and reported from everywhere in the world. You know, from Vietnam to up until recently, and the, and he's just an inspirational person. He's got just amazing stories. I used to just love listening to him. And as I say, I'm in touch with him all the time now. I don't know uh, if he'd be on your show, but he'd be a fantastic person to, to listen to. And his life experience, it's just amazing. I would yeah. I would love to. I mean, like you said, I don't know if he'd, he'd be up for it or not, but um, I think having been in that field, not only as a veteran first, but then being in the media field, um, I'm sure he's got a very, very unique perspective on, you know, what he's seen his own industry, you know, become yeah. good, bad and indifferent. And and what I do know about Larry is that all the, uh, the, the all the Iraqi staff who, who used to work for CBS News and, you know, it doesn't matter from the, the cleaner, the T-boy to the, the main manager, Iraqi manager, he dug out blind and he put so much work and effort and, you know, got them over to the America. Oh, really? Of, yeah, they were under threat because they worked for CBS News for a long time. So a lot of people, you know, they owe their, owe their livelihood to him. He just he badgered and badgered and won't let it go. He made sure the people who were under threat, he, he, he got them over to the States. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, that's even more pertinent right now, obviously. So, yeah, that's... And I think that's it. We, we have a tendency, myself included, to talk you know about media talk about lawyers you know all these these kind of professions that we do have some people that maybe their ethics are a little questionable but amongst them obviously are some incredible people who are professionals that you know we need to hear their voice that's what that's what that industry should be full of yeah 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 absolutely some very uh, inspirational and, and compassionate people you know and yeah he would definitely be a good person to be on the show uh, I've not told him I was on this. I'll have to get in touch with him and, uh, yeah, that, Larry Doyle, look him up. Well, Mel, um, I just want to say thank you so much. Before I let you go, you mentioned that you have Instagram now. Where can people reach out to you or find you online? It's at Malvin Downs, but it's Malvin. That's Mike Echo Lima, Victor Yankee November. It's Malvin with a Y and Downs ES at the end. So it's not Malvin with an eye, it's at Malvin Downs. Beautiful. Well, Mel, I want to say thank you so much. Um, firstly, like I said, I'm honored that this was the first podcast that you came on. I really am. But hearing your story, um, you know, it's it, there's so many layers to every single person's story. And, and I really appreciate you telling, you know, the, the highs and the lows, some of the darker stuff, because I, I understand that that takes that person back to that place, which isn't a fun place for them to go. But there's so much value, I think, for people listening to see and understand what our men and women in uniform did for us. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Uh, thanks, James. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.